0: Hello and welcome to this Ambitious About Autism podcast. Uh, In this edition, we are talking about autism and museums and I'm joined by three uh, very well-known experts in their own right within this particular area. Firstly, we have Claire Match, who is a museum volunteer, consultant and parent to autistic children. Um, She recently ran an award um, from the Museum and Heritage Awards as Volunteer of the Year. Uh, We have Becky Morris here, who is the leader, uh, curator, I suppose, of Museum Disability Cooperative Network and is the Collector's Assistant at Heritage and Culture Warwickshire. And uh, lastly, we have uh, Mark Barrett, who is now currently a student at University of East Anglia and a former trainee within a museum beforehand um, and is also a member of the Museum Association Transformers, Uh, So uh, welcome everyone. Hello. Hello (laughs) there, thank you. Um, So could I just start by asking if you could tell me a bit about where your interest of museums grew and the importance of museums in your life in general?
1: Well, my interest, unlike a lot of um, young people, didn't actually start when I was a child, but relatively recently um, well, when I say recently, maybe within the last six years or so, um, as I've, I've, my interest mostly came from an interest in art and so pursuing art galleries and looking at different things. And um, from there, I slowly started to become more interested in history as I got older. And so I started doing some more research into museums until I came across this traineeship after college. And I applied for it. And I would say the importance in, to museums in my life is, uh, well, it's about 80% of my thoughts most of the time. <laughs> and that was enriched by working in the museum sector, I think, seeing it all. But I just, I love museums. I I obviously enjoy looking and viewing, but it also does a lot to, for my well-being, having struggled with stress and anxiety, Um, it's not just a hobby, but much more of uh, an enrichment, therapeutic factor in my life. Uh, Claire, would you like to tell us what you think? So,
2: um, I love museums, I'm slightly obsessed with museums. Um, I did a degree in history, so I spent a lot of time um, in the British Museum um, because my degree did a bit of work on the Greek and Romans, so that was great. Um, But I worked in libraries for about 12 years, and then when my daughter was diagnosed with autism in 2012, I quit my job to support her because she really um, was struggling to go to school. And I thought I would volunteer in my local museum one day a week just to have some time for me. Um, and quickly became very addicted. <laughs> so I enjoy seeing what goes on behind the scenes. I take my kids obviously to museums and we were family um, friendly judges for the Kids and Museums Award and I took them to a museum and my daughter had a meltdown um, in the museum and it made me really think about how museums impact on them and how they can, there's lots of barriers really for, for us to visit. Um, So now I I write a blog about museums. So I I see a lot of exhibitions and I'm in and out of museums all the time and drag my poor kids to them and they go, (laughs) no more museums, (laughs) mum. But no, so yeah, a lot of my life. I like that percentage. I don't want to admit how much of a percentage museums are in my life, to be honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Becky?
2: Well, um, I remember
3: visiting... Um, a museum when I was six years old and being shown by a museum attendant that you could see the mummy's toenails for which as six years olds do, I screamed the place down and was absolutely terrified but I remember key points of my life of looking at history of fashion books, archaeology and the idea was, was that you could read all the books in the world but there was an object that was there and there's no arguing about it and you can see how it was made like the fingerprints on a medieval jug, to where a skirt had been actually gone from on the knee to above the knee to keep it in fashion in the 1960s and for me it's all about people's stories so that's how important they are for me but the key thing was with myself was it was always the object, I really had a hard time reading all the labels because I have dyspraxia and one of the difficulties with that is that I can't remember sometimes what I've read but I've got a really good visual memory so I can remember the object but it was also feeling quite uneasy about being able to recall what I'd actually learned about Mm. that particular object but for me there is no greater thing in the world than actually seeing an object that was carried by somebody or engaged with somebody and it doesn't necessarily have All it is is the
0: narrative. Thank you, and what helps to make a museum appealing to a wide audience and uh, for those who want children and young people to visit?
3: For me, what I love is first of all the multi-sensory approach, so the idea that you can have tactile, visual, auditory, and this can happen pre-visit, during and after. And the key thing is for me is that that multisensory stuff doesn't have to be expensive. It's something which can be all-encompassing as well, but also being able to um, see and engage with objects that relate to people or people and
1: Mark. Uh, well, the question about um, a wide variety of audiences and how museums can appeal to those audiences, I think it is a big question in the sector. And I think Becky hit the nail on the head with um, that multi-sensory experience. Um, There's many people who can't fully engage with objects and collections like others can. So in order to have something in there that's appeals to, to different kinds of audiences is such a big experience and um, for children and young people I think um, for, for me I remember having to think, out, think about events and um, in, inclusion for young people which is a particularly hard audience to target um, especially the 18 to 25 year olds um, but I think it's about moving away from that academic area, of the academic side of museums, which can sometimes intimidate a lot of people and move more towards an uh, inclusive space, displaying histories that people can relate to or, and understand and um, actually enjoy. Yeah. Claire?
2: Well, I think um, locality is really important because there's a network of museums around the country, big and small, and you don't always have to travel very far to to be able to access your local museum. And I think they have such a variation of topics, and I think that's particularly important if you do have a child who's got a special interest. And that distraction, if they're anxious about visiting somewhere but they love trains or they love boats, can make a real a real difference. And to see them really flourish in, in a place dedicated to their, their special topic is fantastic. I mean, they are, they're learning environments, and that's another thing that's really important for families whose children might be excluded from school, because it can really help with their education. But I think, primarily, they're places to go and have fun and be with your family and, and get an interactive experience. That's really important, not just looking and, and reading, but you know, having some fun.
0: Now, can you describe what Ormsman Museums means to you? Um,
1: well, it's it's. Uh, I think it's there isn't really a straightforward explanation. And um, I, I was in um, Edinburgh actually the other week, and we were talking about access to the galleries, and we quite often came back to the same starting point that remember that autistic people aren't all the same. So, autism in museums, there's, to me, it, I don't want to sound too abstract, but it can mean anything, depending on the type of access that, that suits individual autistic people. Because some things may work for others, and um, not for um, others. And, but generally, to sum it up, I've, autism in museums, for me, is um, in in order to have a museum that can is welcoming and that c- um, can facilitate fully for people with autism, and they feel as as least intimidated as possible to visit. Claire, yeah, you sure. Like to go?
2: Um, yeah. What is autism in museums? Um, it is about um, access and it is about awareness, but that's a very um, broad look at it, I think personally for us it's just about being able to go out as a family and have a good day, and, and that might mean lots of different things for a museum, how they support them. But I think over the last year or so, and also as my daughters got older, um, autism in museums is m- more than just supporting families and young people. I think it's, for me it's about volunteering, it's about work experience, it's about autistic staff in museums and how they're supported. So I see um, for a lot of museums they think autism in museums and they think how can we support young people you know, um, up to the age of 11 and their families but it's so much broader than that but I think that will come I think people are starting to really see that, and I'm sure Mark with your work that's what's really tapping in into that. And Becky. Yes, that is actually an excellent point
3: because um, that's a key area that I'm interested in as well as part of DCN, is that the idea is is that you must have inclusive service delivery through awareness, but also in regards to design, but also that if, if you're going to have an inclusive workforce, that that in, must be echoed as well. So for example, with internships, making sure that people don't have to meet up just prior Uh, just before rush hour or just after rush hour also being able to have a room where people can go out and have a relaxing environment but also in regards to internships make sure that there are plenty of systems in place within the museum's workforce um, to support those people. Now the interesting thing is, is that DCM was part of the Westminster Achievability Commission Called Neurodiverse Voices, opening the doors to employment, and this report was lodged in Parliament in January. And the key thing is with that, it's about the recruitment barriers and retention barriers of neurodiverse people across the entire spectrum. So dyslexia, autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, and all the others. And the key thing is with that is that is an area that we're working on, um, and we've. We've also, I've got Mark involved as well, and the key thing is with that is actually highlighting that some of the interview and employment um, barriers that people can have, because in the end, the key thing is, is that the heritage sector needs neurodivergent people as a workforce um, because there are so many positives, and in the end, it's uh, enabling the organisation to recognise those barriers that they may be presenting and also looking at different ways in which to employ people, but most importantly to retain them as well. So it's a really key area of our work.
0: Excellent, and um, you've perhaps answered some, in some respects this question yourself already, but um, what work have you done to try and help improve access for autistic visitors and their families uh, to feel comfortable uh, to visit museums? I start
2: with you, Claire, at okay. this time? <laughs> um, so when I started, really it was just writing blogs. So I wrote about our visit to the Science Museum and their early bird mornings when they open up um, at half eight in the morning. And that blog had a 1,000 views in a day, and I think it's been read about um, 6,000 times. And it really showed me that lots of families wanted to know about events. And museum professionals started to contact me asking for advice about how to put, put on events like that. So this year I launched my Autism in Museums uh, website and on there I put events and there's some blogs about um, different ones i visited and some resources to kind of spread best practice and I have a dedicated Autism Museums Twitter account where I retweet events to try and get them out there. Um, And through all this now I've been invited to do more talks to museum professionals so I've spoken at Kids in Museums events. Uh, museum and heritage show I spoke at last week, a uh, visitor experience forum, to try and really reach not just learning teams, and that's really important to me. It, it's got to be a museum-wide approach. Um, and I've done a little bit of consultancy, and that's really important because it's very easy to say what a museum should be doing, but it's only when you go in and chat to staff and you see what some of the problems they're facing. So I've helped the Natural History Museum with their events and the Jewish Museum... Um, and the V and A. And the problems that come up are different depending on the size of the museum and what they want to do. So it's really useful to, to talk to them. And um, recently I did a project with the Museum of London um, and we took some young autistic adults and we did a work experience project and that was great just to try and um, help them with some work-based skills to, to get them started. Um, And most recently I just raised uh, over a thousand pounds doing a sponsored walk in London. So I'm looking at buying some sensory equipment that will be available for free to museums. So hopefully there'll be something on my website in June about that. So if a museum is very keen on reaching out to more people, then they can get in contact and we can try and help them set up those programs and events. And uh,
1: Mark? Um, Yeah, well, I suppose it's worth mentioning um, that, I I don't think I've said, I've I've uh, I've got a diagnosis of autism and I was diagnosed with ASD at the age of four and, I mean, in comparison to Becky and Claire, I'm relatively early in my career, having not worked in museums for long, so, I mean, I haven't done, well, I've done a fair number but maybe not as Mm much Um, but it all started when I did my traineeship and um, in order to improve access for autistic visitors um, I was developing a project at Ipswich Museum where we trialled some early birds um, Hours at the museum, inspired from what I saw at other museums doing similar things, as well as that I gave some autism awareness training at um, for the staff there at the museum, in which was um, it was highly considered, and it just it hit me really how there was quite a few people who either didn't know that much, and some uh, people even had not been fully aware of the condition or conditions before about autism so it's it just shows that it's although we've come a far away with um, awareness of the condition we're not there yet um, but in terms of my other work having been joined the fantastic um, Museum Association Transformers that wasn't promotion at all um, <laughs> I started um, with their ideas, their resources, and their coaching, started developing my own practice in autism access. And um, now it's um, I'm, it's getting quite exciting because I've already been invited to, to, to Dorset, where I met you, Jack. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to Edinburgh um, and gave some advice there. And I'm even due to go to Cornwall in a week, which um, a couple of weeks which should be a, a long journey but that that would be very nice to speak at that event but in terms of the work I'm doing now it's, it's all based from some funding from Transformers but I want to develop my own resource kit in terms of awareness training and access and trying to help different museums out there and like Becky mentioned earlier I'm doing some work with her in terms of employment for people with autism and I read a couple of those reports as well which were um, very worth reading so some of those reports I'm hoping will feed into my own work but and that's a work in progress but yeah I think I've <laughs> spoken enough of <laughs> those. <laughs>
3: and Becky? Well one of the reasons why we developed DCN was the idea that museum professionals could go to a website and find case studies, resources, projects that are happening and also in regards to um, things like blog sites and links and things like that. And so what we do is on our DCN websites um, we have resource pages for neurodiversity and one of those is relating to autism. So we have links Case studies in regards to the sensory backpacks, VNA and a and also in regards to blog sites and also other um, projects that have happened throughout museums. So anybody from literally right up to I don't know the Orkneys, right? You know my geography is terrible. Um, <laughs> literally, literally anywhere in the country um, can actually find out. But we've also um, we have contacts internationally as well, so we're able to relate to what, this,
0: what we're doing. Fantastic, and what can all museums do to try to become autism friendly? Which might be quite a, a big question. What's you're gonna say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I think any top tips that anyone has to share uh, would be very useful, I reckon, for our listeners. <laughs>
3: Um, if I could make a suggestion, something that's always stayed with me, which was uh, something that Ellen Lee said at the REF Museum, which was, you may be doing things already that are welcoming for autistic visitors. The key thing is is collaboration. Um, I run a adult uh, group in Tamworth in Staffordshire, and one of the things that we do is we actually invite museums um, to work with us in respect to feedback uh, within the area um, so they're able to get sort of cross-spectrum but also in regards to um, potential barriers before they become
2: barriers. Yeah, um, yeah it is a big question. <laughs> I think for me it's um, not about right and wrong. I think museums are too worried about doing the wrong thing quite often. And and we all learn from experience, and as a parent, with my children, I haven't always got it right, Um, and I think sometimes it's best just to go for it, and it might not quite work, but you'll learn from it, and I think that's far more important than thinking, oh, I need lots of money to do this, I need lots of training, and sometimes you just give it a go and just see how you get on. And I think solutions really vary depending on the size and location of the museum, because it's not always about opening up early. Um, that's not the only, only way to be more autism friendly. But If I was going to pick um, three things, I think training is really important, raising that awareness with your staff from front of house all the way through to your cafe staff. Um, I think information on your website, uh, a visual story, so people can have a look and see what they're going to um, come up against when they come and visit, if there's any barriers for them. And I think if you really want to do it right, as um, Becky said, I think it's collaboration. It's it's talking to your local audiences, whether that's local families on your doorstep or local charities, to really understand um, what the problems are and how you can help.
1: Well, I think those were two brilliant replies. I can't really add too much more. (laughs) I'm at a disadvantage there. um, But what I I can add is... um, the idea of allyship, I think it's um, now this is a concept I've heard recently about. But the idea of being of people within museums being able to recognise that um, they're in a privileged position compared to others, I think, and um, often autistic people, um, whether they want to work in museums or they're visiting. Are at that disadvantage where they can 't um, where s- some access to the galleries or try or the workforce is more difficult than others, so trying to so making those allowances and making patience for people is a really key thing i mean I think i I wrote a blog for, for the arts council once, and I said to um, uh, I said in it that the first step is understanding, awareness and I, I also said that you have, to, uh, you have to accept there's a problem or accept that something needs to be done and then once you have that understanding and uh, insight into autism then you can start to make those meaningful changes and the best way to do that is of course through training but one training session doesn't completely cover it you i I would say keeping updated on training sessions and not just um, receiving and then moving on but have it embedded in the workforce keep professional advice going and yeah just don't give up
0: and and Claire, you've raised some of this already, but are there any misconceptions um, you have come across when trying to create better access within museums? Yeah,
2: I think um, a lot of people are worried it's going to cost a lot of money, which it, it doesn't always. Um, there are some really low-cost things that you can do that make a big a big difference. I think, as like yeah, as I said, museums often worry that they're going to get it wrong, and they they really want to pin down the right language or... And, and often it's... They're getting bogged down in, in the nitty-gritty sometimes. And I know the, the intentions are really good, but sometimes you do just need to go for it, I think. It, autism is such a spectrum. You can't um, cater for every eventuality. So it's more of a, an approach that if you open up, it works better, I think. Um, and I've had... Often people come, well, how do we do this programme for people with autism, and this programme for people with le- um, hearing impairment, and this programme for people with dyslexia, and, and they start, we can't do it all. And I think it's completely the, the wrong approach. Because often these changes, and the training that staff has, um, benefits all staff, and it benefits all visitors, not just autistic visitors. If you put vision information on your website, that benefits all sorts of um, visitors. And I think that's really important, particularly to get across to senior management who might not understand the impact that these little changes can have to their whole audience, not just one section of it.
1: Oh, well, <laughs> well money's also always uh, an issue, so, and uh, Claire has uh, explained that very well. Um, I mean i don 't mean to repeat the same sort of ground, but i suppose i I might repeat myself in saying one thing uh, it's not a one one size fits all when it comes to museums it, uh, to autism in museums i i think um, if you if you think it's a, a case of doing it and then um and then leaving it there. I think that that isn't the right approach either. It's It's got to be, you've got to be constantly thinking about it and seeing what can be changed, what needs to be improved. Becky, is there anything you wanted to add?
3: Yeah, sometimes um, it's capacity. Some museums yeah. do get quite concerned about capacity, um, how much work they've got to do, and um, do they have time to do this? And the difficulty is with that is that yes, yes is the answer. Um, We work not just within the heritage sector but across other sectors because what we want to do is actually we connect with other sectors to see what they're doing but also in regards to thinking that's a great idea. We could use that and it costs no money. (laughs) And and actually it becomes um, more more all-encompassing and more engaging but also... Um, in regards to how the sector is in respect to funding and also the cutbacks that have happened, it is incredibly important to, to widen participation and this is it. With the, as Claire was saying about the cost element, in the end a lot of things are low cost. It's more of a case of sometimes the confidence in collaborating with that situation
0: and what are the benefits for the museums who are more welcoming for autistic visitors and mm-hmm. their families? A lot. <laughs> we just leave my- yeah.
1: <laughs> No question. <laughs> yeah, I would say that a lot of benefits. Um, I think if you were to speak corporately, um, I know it's not something that we like to think about, but it is important financially to have wider participation, to involve diverse audiences. Um, it's, it's very important and it um, shows, it showcases your museum at its best. If it not only has a programme accepting um, for autism accessibility, but it does it well, I think there's a, a, awards that are also uh, that look very good for the museum, like Chelmsford I know have recently had their Autism uh, Friendly Award, and of course I'm, I'm speaking a bit cynically about what looks good, but there are in-depth benefits as well to, um, uh, to the museum welcoming autistic visitors. Visitors, um, you have much more participation from the communities you're so desperately trying to target um, and those hard to reach audiences, which quite often come under um, audience development programs in museums. So, in terms of audience development, there's a a huge benefit there. Thank
0: you, and um, Becky.
3: Right, yes. For me, this is the key thing to all of it. I know that we call ourselves the Disability Cooperative Network, but we're about inclusion. So the idea is is that your, your solutions can benefit, as Claire was saying earlier, a wider audience as possible. But also, in respect to the museum itself, it can show a confident organisation, but also one that's interconnected within a town centre management. So within the local authority and also in there's a lot of partnership opportunity there. Um, and though I don't want to talk about, you know, the, the financial side of things, um, there's the business model as well as the social model. And the business model, it's worth 12.4 billion yeah. in terms of accessible tourism. And that's from Visit Britain. And The purple pound. The purple <laughs> pound, oh yes. <laughs> and the key thing is with that is that that figure is huge, absolutely massive. I'm not saying you should do it for the money, I am not saying that at all. <laughs> what I am saying though is, is that it is a worthwhile investment and it is about something that, like I say, pays off and in terms of social model
2: benefits so many audiences that why would you want to leave it out? Okay. Um Aside from the benefits, really it's, it's the duty of all museums to welcome autistic visitors and families, all families, because they have national collections and they, they look after them for the public, so they should be welcoming, <laughs> regardless of what the benefits are. But um, they will be reaching first-time audiences, I think. They'll really be reaching a lot of isolated families and, and that's really important. And as both Mark and Becky have said, funding, it's key in museums. So if you want to build a new gallery or extend your museum and you want, for example, Heritage Lottery funding, then you're going to need to be engaging with diverse audiences. Um, Otherwise, you're you're not going to succeed. So it's absolutely key to to what you're doing and and who you are. And I think aside from all the the funding and the legal requirements and and all of that, when I've spoken to staff who've worked at the Science Museum on the early birds events, um, they say that's the best event that they work and they absolutely love it because they see the impact on families and, you know, they, they come back time and again to work that event because it's just, it makes such a big impact.
1: Can I um, just add something else which I've just thought about? Um, the uh, Museums Association have um, put a publication called Museums Change Lives, which very much relates, which autism in museums very much has a connection towards. And um, the idea is that, um, of the publication, is that it's making that argument that museums can promote well-being and change within individuals' lives. So therefore, um, a, a benefit of that is that you're actually not only helping the museum, you're not only giving a visitor to Good Lives, but you're actually providing a therapy almost as well, which can have all sorts of um, health benefits. Indeed. Um, For our last three
0: questions, we now come on to one that are direct for uh, each of our three guests. So Claire, as I've already stated in my introduction, you are very active as a volunteer, Consulted and parent advocate as well as blogger as well to museums um, what do you think has changed in the time since you have been involved within this setting and this world of museums and is there anything else that needs to be done in the future
2: um, yeah I think I've seen a huge change from when I wrote that first blog in 2013 I think it was and I began to put events on my website, and there was only a couple. And now there's so many events that I struggle to keep up with with them, putting them on my website, and that is fantastic, and it's really, really good to see. And I think there's a lot more awareness around autism now, definitely, and how isolated families have become. But particularly in the last few weeks, I've been really pleased at the events that I've spoken to, that people have come up to me and said not only are they running events but they're looking at working with volunteers, they're looking at getting um, internships and apprenticeships for autistic people and they've been asking questions about how they can support their autistic staff and I think that's just made me so happy to hear that. Um, In terms of what needs to be done, oh lots, lots always going to push for more, it's never (laughs) never enough. I think there still is um, a long way to go. And lots more to do, particularly in the really busier places, um, the tourist attractions like Tower of London, somewhere like, you know, that have a lot of uh, visitors. Those sorts of places are really difficult to to welcome autistic people. Um, But I think um, going forward, what can museums do? For me, it's all about conversations, it's about museums talking to other museums who are running events, Um, have a chat to one and see how they're getting on how they've made it work it's about museums talking to local autism charities who are on their doorstep and because they can offer training and awareness they're already in contact with lots of families they'll be supporting so you've got a ready-made audience for you there you know talk to your families that are on your doorstep invite them in get them to help you make a visual story make it a celebration and i think if we keep working that way then it, the sector is only going to get better and better and i've seen just as a personal and uh, i've seen the benefits for my my daughter definitely from going up and visiting events and getting used to traveling in london and the change in her is remarkable so i just want that for other families
0: and mark why do you feel autistic people should consider museums or the world of heritage generally?
1: As a career, and how can they pursue this? Okay, well, I think to start, Claire's final point really uh, builds into mine because, um, like it's helped your daughter, I feel working in a museum in the heritage world and uh, learning new skills, doing different things, and meeting new people has really enriched my life and it's. Done me so much good, and I've noticed the benefits and how, um, like, the awareness for autism is getting better. So, um, uh, so that's how that's one reason why, because museums are great. Um, <laughs> and, but in all seriousness, to I think what with autistic people generally, there is. Uh, a high focus in certain subjects of interest and I really believe that they are a great asset to the museum service and so I think working in a museum you're able to draw upon that focus and knowledge and channel it in a very constructive way. Um, And also the other side to it is that it's not just curatorial or knowing about history. Museums are after all sorts of transferable skills like autistic, well, many autistic people, for example, are very computer literate. so So the digital market is very big to get into museums now, especially with the new report that the government has just released digital Culture is digital. Yes, that's the one. Um, and what advice I can give? I mean, I, I suppose it's easy for me to say, as I'm quite, um, I'm quite able, and unusually for autistic people, I like to um, speak and I like to make conversation. But uh, volunteering is definitely the great way to go. And if at first you might find that difficult, then I would always look for the people who you're most closest to. I had my mum on my very first volunteering, uh, asking for volunteering, come with me, as I shyly went to the desk. And um, I got some part-time volunteering work on some activities, art activities in the museum. Um, But at the same time, accept that it's not going to come quickly, you have to, Work at it, but it's all worth it at the end. Um, yeah, and just um, do your do your best to branch out, talk to different people, find, and I know this is difficult, but find the people who you most uh, f- are most comfortable with, as they can um, provide great allies when trying to access to centre. It's actually part of the work I'm on to try and do is mentoring with networking in for autistic people in museums as I feel um, I can be that liaison so watch this space.
0: We will do and uh, Becky um, you've given us some snapshots during the course of the podcast already but um, tell us about DCN and um, its background, how it came about, and how has served to help enhance practices within the sector?
3: Yes, certainly. Um, With DCN, um, DCN was found because I left the sector uh, for about 18 months and then went back into it. And during that time, I sort of qualified for uh, neurodiversity up to access to work level. And I noted that lots of things that I was doing while I was training, I was like, "That's not right. That's not accessible. Why are they using Times New Roman? I was told not to do that, <laughs> um, and things like that." And I thought, "This is strange." And I used to love Magda, the Museum and Galleries Disability Association. Then I started at work, saying, "This is not right. This is not right." So somebody suggested, "Why don't you start a blog site?" And then I got in touch with Claire <laughs> and said, "I've had an idea," and. I would like to just meet up with some people that feel the same way. And we all met up outside the Natural History Museum and we had coffee and biscuits at this Italian cafe that now needs to be blue plaqued. I feel. <laughs> and what it was was that we realised we all felt the same way. And we built up the website and we launched um, on September 2015 but then we started 18 months of working with other sectors and seeing what they were doing. A lot of this was done online, so it wasn't you know, through uh, various sort of Twitter conversations and things like that, particularly in regards to digital inclusion. And then what happened was that we've noted that there are particular things that, that need to happen. Um, and it's fine, it's, it's, it's a to-do list, as Claire was saying, there's, there's plenty to do. So, one of the things that we've done already is we still have the website that gets regularly updated. We have a Twitter feed in respect to news, sharing events, also any kind of conferences that are coming up. Then we've got the NeuroDiverse Museum Professionals Group, which are free resources to do with access to work, the report that I've just mentioned, the WAC report, also about. Podcasts, and also in regards to um, any kind of support, strategy sharing, anything like that. And the idea is, is that you can have the res- uh, resources, and then you can join uh, via invitation, like that. Then, um, with my other um, hat on, I'm, I'm a member of the Dyslexia Adult Network, and um, I know the guys that, uh, at Achievability, and we're cross neurodivergent profiles in respect to achievability. And the key thing is, it, it's about identifying the crossovers. So for me, I've got a real problem with background noise, and I find it really distracting. So I tend to use noise reduction headphones if I go into a museum and think, oh my goodness, I've oh, got a relaxed area, brilliant, like that. Or if I can't find it, because I have got no sense of the direction, it's like, oh yes, I can go there, you know, I am mm-hmm. gonna have five minutes out, like that. In the end, it's sort of those identifying those crossovers and all sort of working together. We also work in respect to looking at things like accessible conferences, so making sure there's plenty of breaks, also in regards to quiet areas, ensuring that there's captions, things like that. Also in regards to intersectionality, as well, so isolation, government policy in regards to that, and also in regards. To um, different difficulties, cultural difficulties that people may have in respect to neurodiversity, if that is such a thing. So, if you've, what I mean by that, just to roll it back, is that people who are, BAME, who are neurodivergent, sometimes when it comes to access to diagnosis and to screening, sometimes there's difficulties within that. Um, so, looking at those and seeing if they are particularly unique or if they are particularly if there's shared opportunity there. And then um, we're looking at digital inclusion, also in regards to the infrastructure for digital inclusion, and then we are looking at basically getting people together. So the idea is is that literally it's a case of just chucking everybody together and uh, talking about access and inclusion.
1: Oh, sorry. Where you gonna ask? Oh no, did you <laughs> want to add it? Um, yes, I've, something has come to my mind, and I think I'll kick myself if I don't say it. <laughs> I wanted to just highlight the idea of um, how how someone with autism or any neurodivergent disability should um, whether they should state it on a job application or not. And I would always, I'd like to say, and it, I know it's easy. I would always recommend uh, um, that it's a good thing to uh, let your employer know about your autism and and even involve it on your CV and uh, put it in a a positively worded way so there's an advantage to it. Chances are it will, well, I'm almost certain that it will not um, count negatively towards you. Um, it's And from my experience it's shown very positively that I was able to communicate about my disability and that they were able to put that help in place at the very first instance. So I would, um, I mean it's up to people but just to point that out, I would, I would always highly recommend it and especially the museum service, they're always looking for, um, the big word diversity um, now more and more it's becoming encouraged I, I just wanted to say that thank mm-hmm. you
3: yeah. if I could just add what I would just say is, is do your research first about your organization so yeah. um, make sure I wouldn't just rely on just the usual policies either just have a look around and talk to the front of house staff and also in regards to the local authority and make sure that you've got as much information as possible in respect to in, delivered in a positive way as Mark
0: was saying yeah. and on that note if, there, if there's nothing else that anyone would like to contribute further I would say Claire Batch, Becky Morris and uh, Mark Barrett uh, thank you very much thank, thank you Jack
4: thank, thank you, you. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Ambitious About Autism podcast series and thanks so much to Jack Claire, Becky and Mark for coming on the podcast and speaking so passionately about the importance of accessibility in museums. If you're interested in finding out more about their work, you can find Claire on Twitter at, at autisminmuseums, and visit her website autisminmuseums.com. She also collaborated with Jack to create a resource called Welcoming Families and Young People with Autism which can be found on the Kids in Museum website. You can follow Becky's work on Twitter at at @museumdcn, and her website is musedcn.org.uk. To find out more about the Neurodiverse Museum Professionals Network, visit ndmuspgrp.ning.com. Mark's Twitter is at mbarrettmuseums. And he has also written a blog called Embedding Diversity in Museums for the Arts Council England. So definitely check that out. Finally, you can follow Jack at MrJW18 on Twitter and Jack's Photos93 on Instagram to see all of his work on autism inclusion. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast or any of our previous podcasts, you can tweet us on AmbitiousAutism or message us on Facebook or Instagram on at Ambitious About Autism. Thanks for listening.